0: Good morning. morning. Uh, For those of you here in person, it's great to see. If you're joining us online, we are equally grateful to have you joining us as we gather together to worship, to hear from God together. Uh, As Mike mentioned, we are in John 7 this morning. We're in the Gospel of John sermon series, and I'm actually going to start a little bit different. So normally what I do is I kind of give you a recap of where we've been and a heads up on where we're going uh, in a sermon series like this, but something really cool happened today. So we, um, as Jeremy mentioned earlier in Live Welcome, we actually had a baptism in the last service. And there are a couple reasons why I mentioned that. One, I just wanna give God all the glory for what he's doing in our church, despite all the difficulties that we have faced this year, right? So like a couple years ago, we were doing uh, what we're doing now in John. We were doing that in the book of Acts. We're going through the book of Acts, verse by verse, line by line. And the, and the title of that series was The Unstoppable Church. Because what we noticed is that despite all of the things that came against the church that the church prevailed that the church continued not only to survive but thrive and grow and thousands were being added to the church daily despite the intense persecution and difficulty that the early church faced and so we 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 talked about that in the book of acts and now this year we're kind of living that out on some level that all of the plans we had for 2020 have been thwarted and changed and disrupted but God's plans have not And one of the evidences of that is is through those who have come to Christ, those who have been baptized this year. And so what's cool about the six who have been baptized this year are that five of those are kids. And I'm pointing it out because kids ministry has been on hold since March for the most part. And despite that, God is still working in our kids, in the next generation, but working through families because all five of those kids were baptized by their dads. And what a beautiful testimony when God is working through parents as spiritual leaders in the home and it reminds us as a church our role is to partner with you as a family as you seek to make disciples in your own home and so last service um, little six-year-old Brendan kid was baptized by his father and it was a really cool uh, experience as a church but typically what happens in a baptism here is we have the person write down their testimony And so, as Brendan wrote down his testimony this week about his relationship with Jesus and what Jesus has done for him, in the end, he included a paragraph, just like three sentences, that summarized how God has been speaking to him through the Gospel of John series. This is from the words of a six-year-old describing what God has spoken to him through the series. And so I thought it would be appropriate for me to read to you just this little excerpt from his testimony. And so Brendan, at the end of his testimony, says, I want to tell you what Jesus did for me. Now, in what he's about to talk about, he's going to refer to Jesus feeding the 5,000 as a party. So from the perspective of a six-year-old, he's like, that sounds like a party to me, right? So Jesus is there. A lot of people showed up. They had this fantastic meal. What better word to use than a party? He says this about Jesus. Jesus had a big party, and he said, drink my blood and eat my body. And then after the party, the bad people found Jesus, took him to the cross. And after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, they took him into a cave. And on one, two, three, the third day, he came back to life and went to heaven. Perspective of a six-year-old on the gospel of John, not only where we've been, but where we're going. And so I just wanna read that and share a little bit of Brenda's story with you and how God's been speaking to our kids, even as we open his word together. And so today we are in chapter seven. Last week marked the moment where Jesus drew a hard line in the sand for the would-be disciples, the would-be followers. And he said what Brendan just quoted, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? You won't have eternal life. And so rather than leaning into his teaching and saying, hey, will you explain that to us? They said, we're out, we're going home. And chapter six leaves us with what seems like just the 12 still remaining as followers of Jesus. And so now we're going to pick this up in chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll get started. So what, you, what we're going to find today is that um, in chapter 7 of John, there are two primary themes. Okay, So we're going to go like through about six verses, then we're going to jump to the end to look at this theme of God's timing. Then next week, we're gonna come back and look at chapter seven again and hit the rest of the verses that talk a lot about what Jesus was saying and how he was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. So that's our journey today, starting in verse one. Here we go. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So just an opening statement here. After Jesus drew the hard line in the sand, The crowd went home, all he had left were the 12. Jesus is gonna hang out a little while longer around Galilee. So this is the region north of Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Now this is a really significant um, part of the story because of what's happening in Jerusalem at this point in time, which we're about to see. So eventually we know the end of the story that Jesus ends up at the cross. Well, where is the cross? That's in Jerusalem. So we know his life trajectory is headed towards Jerusalem. But right now, what John is telling us is, hey, he's hesitating to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to see today why he's hesitating as he remains there in Galilee for a few more days. And what John tells us is because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, on the surface, that sounds like, oh, well, he's scared, and he doesn't want to face death. Okay, so have that in mind, because that's probably what you and I would be thinking if somebody's like, hey, you want to go hang out with me in Arlington? There's some people over there who want to kill you, right? You would hesitate to go, right? We're gonna see that that's not at all why Jesus is hesitating to go to Judea, um, but instead, there's something bigger going on. So verse two tells us what's going on. Verse two says, "'Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. "'So his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go to Judea, "'that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. "'For no one works in secret "'if he seeks to be known openly. "'If you do these things, "'show yourself to the world.'" for not even his brothers believed in him. That's an interesting group of statements, isn't it? So we know that, there's, that the animosity and the hatred towards Jesus is growing and there's a plot to kill him. Okay, and now his brothers are saying, hey Jesus, now these are his earthly brothers. So evidently, Mary and Joseph after Jesus had more kids these are the guys who grew up in the same home as Jesus, okay? So they knew him well, and they're like, hey, bro, you need to, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. There's this huge festival taking place there, this feast of booths, and we think this is the great opportunity for you to go public with your miracles. Go show everybody what you can do. So these guys were amazed with his miracles, right? Like, you need to go show everybody what you're going to do. Imagine how many disciples you would have if you went and walked on water in Jerusalem. If you went and you fed the 5,000 in Jerusalem, if you went and you healed somebody in Jerusalem, just think about how awesome your ministry would be, Jesus. But we know in the end, what, that they ultimately didn't believe in him. They were just, what, enthralled with his miracles. Just like last week, we saw that that's not enough to just see Jesus as the miracle worker. You've also got to receive his hard words, His hard teachings. You've also got to see him as the Messiah, the Son of God, and so even his earthly brothers, while they were enthralled with his miracles and his signs, they had not yet believed. So what was going on with the Feast of Booths? So this was a a fall festival that took place in Jerusalem every year, and it's it's actually kind of a cool festival. I think it's the kind of festival I would have enjoyed going to because you show up in Jerusalem from out of town, and basically you build this kind of temporary shelter out of leaves like a tent, and that's where you stay for seven days. Okay, and so the reason they did this was to remind themselves, first of all, of the time where they wandered through the wilderness and they all lived in tents. Wherever they stopped, they had to build a shelter and they would dwell in it until it was time to move again. And so the Jews would remind themselves of this, this time where God had provided for them miraculously. But it was also, it was the timing of it was the end of the harvest. So it was kind of like our Thanksgiving celebration, but they did it for a full week to celebrate like God's provision in the harvest and they would get together and come from out of town. Now this was Really, a big time. And so the brothers here are, are strategically on point. So I was trying to think of like a modern day equivalent because we don't typically do festivals like this where people come from all around. So um, so think about it I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the, the NFR, the National Finals Rodeo, is coming to Arlington this year. Okay? So that typically takes place in Las Vegas in December every year. And, and what happens in, in Vegas or at the NFR is that people come from all over the world to one place at one time. This year, it's going to be held in Arlington at the old Rangers stadium. Now, that's significant because we're used to having Rangers games and Cowboys games, and then we see fans who come in from out of town to be a part of that game. But what's different about the NFR is it's going to draw people from all over the globe. So for two weeks in DFW, you know, we're, going to, we're going to have like people from all over the world here in our cities. Now, this is what was going on in Jerusalem. It was, it was this people, this kind of migration of people for a full week coming from everywhere to Jerusalem for this festival to be a part of all that was going on. So now you can kind of see from like the brothers' perspectives, right? They're like, man, what a perfect time for you to do some kind of crazy miracle and then everybody will see you and believe in you. And the problem was even they didn't fully believe in Jesus because it's not enough just to see him as a miracle worker, right? You have to see him as the Messiah, the son of God. And so Jesus here has been invited to his brothers to go to Jerusalem, to this festival. Look at what Jesus says in verse six. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So now we have a little bit more insight on why he's not going, right? It's not that he's scared to die. It's what? That his time has not yet come. Clearly, he wants his brothers to understand, this is not a matter of me being scared of being arrested or being persecuted. This is a matter of God's perfect timing for me to go to Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about the story of Jesus' life here on earth from two different perspectives. First of all, I want you to think about the the macro story, the mega narrative of the scripture. How what's happening right here in John seven fits into the whole Bible, right? Because we know that that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, like has been planned since when? Before creation. It wasn't like God's story started unfolding, and then it unraveled, and then turned in a direction God couldn't see it going. He went, oh no, how am I going to fix this? All right, I'm going to have to send Jesus to clean up the mess. When do you want to go? I don't know. Let's just kind of, let's wing it here. No, there's a very specific unfolding of events here, according to the the big story, right, that God is writing with humanity. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says it this way, but when the fullness of time had come, you hear about the timing there, what happened? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So in Christ, we are sons and daughters, we've been adopted in, and all of that is why, because Christ came at just the right time, So, Jesus' time here on earth was not just a random choice by God. It wasn't just happenstance, but God said, Now is the time. And so, Jesus now is saying to his brothers and to the people around him, I live my life according to what? God's timing. And so, I'm not scared to go to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he's going to go. I'm not not scared for my life to end. But what I am is what I'm going to do is I'm going to submit myself to God's timing. Romans 5 6 says that for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so when you read your Bible, right, the the gospel's account of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, like that's unfolding according to, right, this meta-narrative, this macro view from God's perspective. But now think about it on the micro level. The small decisions that Jesus makes, not just day to day, but like moment by moment. What are we gonna eat today? Where are we gonna eat? What time are we going to sleep? What time are we getting up? The simple little decisions you make, right, that guide your life, that guide your journey each day, Jesus is also making those decisions. When we look at verse 10, we're going to see that the macro plan of God is guiding these micro decisions, these small decisions that Jesus is making. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Really, two things are embedded there, the timing and the manner, right? There's a specific time that he's gonna go into Jerusalem, but not only that, there's a manner. He's not gonna go publicly. He's gonna go what? Privately, so hold on to that thought. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke Openly of him, and so there is a there is not only a a timing of when he's going to go to Jerusalem. So he's saying to us, "Hey, you guys, go ahead." There's a specific time that I'm going to go, but not only that, there is a manner in which I'm going to go. Right now, I'm going privately. Now, think about what you know about the unfolding story of Christ. There is a time coming where Jesus will enter into Jerusalem publicly. This is what we call the triumphant entry. This is where Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday on a donkey. The people are laying palm branches down, and it's this public announcement that the king has come. Right? So there's there's a time coming where he's going to enter into Jerusalem publicly. But what is he saying? That time hasn't come yet. It's not that I'm scared to enter into Jerusalem. I'm going to go. But my time has not yet come. So he enters into Jerusalem quietly. Now what he ends up doing is going to the synagogue and teaching and because his teachings are authoritative, they reveal who God is, right? What happens is people begin to gather at the synagogue. Hey, have you heard about this guy who's preaching down at the at the church? No, I'm gonna come listen. Well, his name is Jesus. He's right born in Bethlehem from Nazareth, and they've got to come hear him. So people start gathering at the synagogue to hear. Well, the Jews catch wind of this. And we already know they're looking for him, right? So now they're gonna start showing up at the synagogue. So kind of picture a building like this: Jesus is up front, he's teaching. People are starting to fill in the seats and then out in the back of the room begin to gather the Pharisees and the scribes. Maybe even a couple of Roman soldiers were there ready to arrest Jesus and he sees what's happening. Look at 30 and 31 with me. So they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, "When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done?" So a couple things. One, we're seeing that even though he's not publicly entering into Jerusalem yet, people are already starting to truly believe in him is the Messiah. And next week, we're going to look at the why behind that. What is he saying that's causing people to go, "That's got to be him." Right Here we just get a rhetorical question. They're just like, really, do we need any more proof than what we've already seen? Like, are we expecting the Messiah to do more than this guy? Come on, this is him. This has got to be him. And so some people are already starting to believe in him. But verse 30 says this. So as they were seeking to arrest him, no one does lay a hand on him. Why though? What's the why behind that? Is it because he he was pretty shifty and sneaky and they just couldn't catch him? What's the reason why nobody laid a hand on him? Because his hour had not yet come. So in the small, micro moments of Jesus' life, there's a bigger story unfolding. Are you with me? And that bigger story is guiding what's happening in the small story. Now, I want you to think about your own life. Because when you read the Bible objectively, what you're going to discover is there's a tension in the Bible between God's sovereign plan for the nations, God's sovereign plan for the universe, God's sovereign plan for your life, and the small decisions you make every day. And you're going to see that as God's plan unfolds in the midst of man's ambitions, man's intentions, even with our evil thoughts and desires and intentions, God's plan still unfolds. It's not like the story is ever in jeopardy. Are you with me? Like the nation of Israel, case in point, how many times do they rebel against God, yet God still unfolds his plan through the nation of Israel to bring us a Messiah? I mean, how many attempts does the nation of Israel make to mess up God's plans? And so you've got this sovereign plan unfolding, and in the midst of that, in the small stories, you find us, our ambitions, right, our intentions. Sometimes you find stories where there are men and women who are submitting to God's plans, and oftentimes you find people just all out rebelling, and yet God's plan still stands, doesn't it? Does that not blow your mind? So you find this tension between the sovereignty of God and what we might call the free will of man. And I think that tension is supposed to be there. I'm not bringing that up because I'm gonna solve the riddle for you. I know the Calvinists in the room and the Arminians are like, finally, just tell them how it is. No, I think that tension is there on purpose. Even in my, like, I'll give you an example where I think for me, it just really illustrates this. I go back to Joseph in the book of Genesis. Genesis. If you know Joseph's story, he's the little brother that the older brothers didn't like. They don't like him so much that they actually want to kill him. Maybe you've had a sibling relationship like that. But they actually try to go through with it. And in the end, what they end up doing is selling him into slavery. So wicked intentions for their little brother, right? Not at all what what we would expect God to have planned for Joseph. So the older brothers, their wicked intentions, evil intentions, they want Joseph out of the picture. They're like, you know what, let's make a little money off this deal. Let's sell it. But then if you keep reading in Genesis, what happens in Joseph's life? God's favor rests on Joseph. God's plan, not just for Joseph, but the nation of Israel, actually unfolds through this story to where in the end, right, the nation of Israel, which is just a big family at this point, they're in a time of famine, and they need need food, and who do they come to? This little brother who was sold into slavery, who has risen up now to be a person of influence in Egypt, they come to him and say, "'We are starving, will you give us food?' Now at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, the, brothers finally, the older brothers finally recognize Joseph, they're like, oh my gosh. The one that we're asking for food from is the one we sold into slavery. So their hearts break and they ask Joseph for forgiveness. And Joseph's response is so helpful. What does he say? First of all, you don't need to ask me for forgiveness. Am I in the place of God? Your sin is against God, not me. Then he says what? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Well, which one is it? It's both. It's the evil intentions of man unfolding for Joseph. And God's like, I can trump that. I can take your evil intentions and use it to unfold my good plan for humanity. That's That's the lineage of Jesus we're talking about here. Think about that the nation of Israel, right? God's plan unfolding for them through this evil act against their brother. So listen, church, Christians, I know we stress sometimes about God's will for our lives, don't we? God, what is your desire for me? What, do you want this job or this job? Open this door, close this door. This school, that school. This thing, like, we can't even agree on where we're going to lunch today. <laughs> you know? We don't even know until we pull into the parking lot and put the car in park where we're going to lunch today. And we stress about all these things happening. And now we're in this Kind of this culture that's very uncertain, isn't it? Like the uncertainty of this year is overwhelming. What's going to happen? When's COVID going to end? Is there, when's there going to be a vaccine? Will you be able to trust the vaccine when there is a vaccine? Like just all this uncertainty, like right? all this second guessing of our decisions, and yet we see through the scriptures how God can work. He can work when we're submitting to His will, and we we hear from Him. We're like, yes, I'm going to do this, and He can also work when we're rebelling to unfold his perfect plan for humanity. And so I want you to think about that. I read this account and I wonder, how much did Jesus know about the future? Now, I don't wonder how much he had access to. He's fully God. He has complete access to everything that is gonna happen, that's gonna unfold moment by moment. However, fully God, fully man, I don't know how much of the future he chose not to even realize or recognize, okay? So I don't know that. Here's what I do know. Jesus clearly knew that there was gonna be a triumphal entry into Jerusalem at a specific time, that he was gonna enter into Jerusalem publicly at a a designated day. And not only that, that that entry would lead to a designated arrest, beating, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. How do we know that? Because he taught these things beforehand. He tells his disciples, guys, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die there. I'm gonna be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They're they're gonna beat me, they're gonna kill me. And I'm gonna resurrect, and I'm gonna ascend. And the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit is coming. All these things are fixed in the future. They're not in jeopardy. They're not up in the air. They are going to happen. I wanna look now at verse 32 and 33. So the Pharisees begin to hear what's happening in the synagogue, and they're gathering at the synagogue to arrest Jesus. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I'll be with you a little while longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. Now, I'm tempted to read this in an arrogant tone of voice, but I don't think that that reflects Jesus. Like I just see Jesus, I know this is not right, going You think you're going to arrest me today, but the reality is I'm going to be here a little while longer. What I think Jesus is doing, he's speaking out of a confidence in his heart. I know what your plans are today. You think it's going to go down today. It's not. I'm going to be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. And it won't be on your timetable. I see all you Pharisees and scribes gathering in the back, and you think this is going to go down today, but it's not. And not because I'm gonna pull off some kind of miraculous disappearance act, but simply because it's not my Father's will. That's why it's not gonna go down today. I'm gonna be with you a little while longer. And then, when the time is right, then, and only then, I'm gonna go back to him who sent me. And so now what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna say something that really confuses the Pharisees. Look at what he says next in 34. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now the Jews, verse 35, said to one another, well, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Now, I think what Jesus is talking about is he's looking forward to the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus knows there is coming a time when he will be crucified and he will be buried. And on the third day, people will come looking for him and they won't be able to find him. Why? Because he won't be there. He's not talking about just a miraculous magic trick where he disappears and poof, he's gone. And then he appears somewhere else. He's saying, listen, there's a day coming where you guys are going to be looking for him. Right now you can find me. You found me. Here I am. But it's not going to go down according to your time frame. It's going down according to the time frame of my Father. But there is coming a day where you're going to look for me in a place where you think I should be. And guess what? I'm not going to be there. The tomb's going to be empty. And not only that, look at what else he says. Not only will you look for me and not be able to find me, where I am going, you can't come. He's talking about his ascension. Where's the one place Jesus can go that nobody can find him, nobody can get to him, where he ascends back to the right hand of the Father? And so I don't know how much Jesus knew ahead of time about the details of his life. I know he had access to it, but, but I don't know if he chose to, 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 to lay that down and just let God's plan unfold for him. But we do know this, he knew a death was coming, he knew a resurrection was coming, and he knew an ascension was coming. Here's why I'm pointing that out. You don't know what tomorrow holds for your life. You don't even know what the rest of today looks like. Most of you have got plans for today, And if you've been living long enough to make plans, you know that they're never going to go according to your plans, right? Things are going to change. You don't fully know, what most of us, what we're going to eat for lunch today or breakfast tomorrow. You don't know when your next flat flat tire's coming. You don't know when your next career change is coming. You don't know the next time you're going to get sick. All these things are up in the air. You don't know. You make plans for your life, and then you live them out moment by moment, right? Well, here's the good news. God's timeline and plans are unfolding for you and me that's good news and in the midst of uncertain times you can have peace why because you know the end of the story that's a big deal that's not just a a small detail in in the story like that's that's what jesus is resting in here He's not saying, hey, guys, this isn't going to go down the way you think it's going to happen because here's what's happening tomorrow. He's saying, listen, guys, my plan, the small moments of my life, here's why I'm confident. Here's why I'm at peace because I know the end of the story. There's a time coming. You're going to look for me and can't find me. And there's a place I'm going where you can't go. Listen, church, Christians, we know the end of the story. I, I don't know when you're going to die physically. You don't know that either. Okay? But we do know it's coming. Apart from the second coming of Christ, you and I are going to die physically. But in faith, we know that to be absent from this body, right, is to be present with the Lord. And that at that moment, we'll step into the presence of Jesus like forever, completely. And that there is a second coming and a resurrection of the dead. We know those things, right? And that's why we have certainty in midst of the uncertainty of today. Do we know when COVID's going to end? No. Do we know if it's going to end? No. Do we know what's gonna happen in the presidential election? No. We don't know these things. How can we have peace? Because we know the end of the story. Like that's what we're seeing here in Jesus' unfolding of God's plan for his life. Now what I wanna do is i want to leave you with a question. I want you to think about something you're struggling with right now to trust God's timing in. Maybe something you've been praying about for a while and it just hasn't happened yet. You haven't received an answer or you've received it and you haven't heard it. <laughs> that happens times, sometimes, right? Maybe you're praying for like um, a family member, a kiddo, one of your kids. You know, like, you're just praying, you're praying and the timing hasn't come yet. You're praying for like a relationship that you have and like maybe you've reached out and tried to mend a relationship and it just hasn't happened. You know, and you keep praying for it. Maybe there's something else going on like with your job and you're praying, God, please, God, show me the next place you want me to go. Open the door, close the door, and it just hasn't happened yet. Like what we're learning today is that like in the moments of uncertainty, what do we do? We trust in God's timing. Because if we're asking the question, God, what do you have for me? We already believe he has a plan. And if God has a plan for you, he has a timing for that plan. you with me on that? And so maybe the answer is just not yet right? Not yet. I think about, it's been on my heart this week, I don't know why, the story of the the prodigal son and the loving father. This rebellious son comes to dad and says, listen, I want my inheritance. I want to check out and go. The father lets him go. He gives him his inheritance and sends him on his way. But he sends him on his way with no certainty on if or when the son will ever return, right? But when the son decides to return, where's the father? He's on the porch watching, right? He doesn't know the timing. He's just watching daily, waiting patiently, for his son to return, like in that that beautiful portrait of like we, we see this idea that in our lives, the plans God has for us that we would sit patiently and we would wait. We would wait with peace. We would wait with certainty, right? Knowing what? God's got a timing for this. God's got a timing for this. So I wanna pray for you right now. Maybe there's something, again, that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's some relational deal, a family crisis. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a business venture. Maybe it's a job change. Whatever it is that you're wrestling with right now, you would wrestle with it with a certainty of knowing that God's perfect plan for your life will unfold according to His timing. Let's pray together as we do that. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. If you're here today and you've never taken that step of faith to trust in Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to encourage you to consider doing that today as we pray, as we sing our pastors will be down front, and we'll be honored to talk with you, to pray with you about anything going on in your life, especially if you're ready to make a decision to follow Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your sovereign plan, not just for humanity, but for our lives. And God, we we don't fully understand how that works, that you have a plan for us, and yet we are constantly in the middle of those plans. And Father, we confess that we don't know what your perfect plan for us is today we don't have any idea about tomorrow but what we do know what we are certain about is that our lives are eternally secure that father when this physical life is done father our eternal life will go on father we know that there will be a return we know that Jesus will come back and there will be a resurrection of the dead and there'll be a restoration of all things And so, Father, in the midst of the uncertainty of today, may we rest in those truths. Father, I pray right now for everybody who's present online and in this room, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, that, Father, we would find peace in your timing, that we would trust and believe that your timing is better than our timing, that we would trust and believe that your plan is better than our plan. So, God, help us to rest in that. Father, we pray any person here today that does not know you personally, like have a relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would draw that person to yourself to trust in Jesus and him alone. We pray all this in his name.